Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Hello. You know what that's from? <laughs> All right, Lenny. Yeah, Lenny. They would Lenny burst through Squiggy, the door. Squiggy, yeah. Squiggy, yeah. They would burst through the door and go, hello. Actually, I think it was Squiggy who would say that. Squiggy, yes. And yeah. I love the fact that Lenny was David St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap. Do you know what Squiggy's doing these days? Well, I, the last thing I actually saw him in was um, Field of or What was the film with Tom Hanks? There's no crying in baseball. Field of Dreams? No, that was uh, Major. No, uh, that was yeah. Major. It was no. the one with the, the chicks. Chicks Madonna and, baseball. Yep. and uh, there's no crying in baseball. He was Rosie one of the Obama. announcers, uh, one of the field announcers, that actor. I, I can't remember his name right now. You know Hello. He, but you know what he does now? You know what his job is now? I don't. He's a major league baseball scout. For real? For real. Oh, wow. It's, so it's the movie cool. was sort of – actually, that film was sort of a, a Laverne and Shirley reunion since Penny Marshall directed it. Because in the dance scene, when the, all the girls went to dance with all the Navy guys and the military guys, one of those guys was Eddie Mecca, the guy who played Carmine Ragusa, oh, that's right. the big ragu. He was a wonderful dancer, and he was in that scene where they were doing the swing dancing and stuff. Cool. Very cool. Speaking of movies, I want to tell a, a quick I'm, – I'm telling a lot of stories lately. I've tell got me the, a story. I've got the just ridiculous amount of storage going on. Before you tell me a story, can you tuck me in? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm going to sip some wine here, so you need to say something for a minute. Um, I'm eating candy. No, no, the studio's not on fire. It's leftover Halloween candy. You know, it's it's evil. Halloween candy is evil. It's evil. Yeah, it's left in the house. I've got buckets filled with it still. Every once in a while, I'll just chunk one of those pumpkin buckets that's stuck to that poor deer's nose. Poor little deary. (laughs) They're going to fix it, though. With a gun, no. Well, a dart gun. Yeah, they're gonna uh, they're gonna yeah, fix right. the gear, and then they'll turn it into a stew. So, well, you know, it, it might happen. Killed by a pumpkin bucket. <laughs> well, no, they're gonna make sure that that doesn't happen, and they're gonna let it heal so it has a fair chance against the hunters. And if you have no idea what the hell we're talking about, go to Google, type in "deer pumpkin bucket." And yeah, you'll, sure you'll, you'll find, find an article about the poor deer who has one of those stupid orange plastic pumpkin stuck to his nose and he can't eat or drink because of it right and they're gonna rescue him so, so it's tell fine. me a story so you know i've seen gladiator many times of course as uh as Do you like uh, gladiator movies about. well <laughs> you like turkish baths <laughs> ever seen a grown man naked well which is very much in keeping with the roman empire anyway turkish baths are all extensions of the roman baths since the roman empire extended that far mm-hmm all right, so anyways, tell me this story. Yeah, I, I have never watched the director's commentary, uh, and I started watching it the other day, and of course it's Ridley Scott, the director. You know him. Blade Runner. Blade, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Alien. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down. Yeah, I mean, he's a great filmmaker. He does action and sci-fi wonderfully. He's he's he, he's very good. And if you watch, if you look at the DVD case to, to the film, it says, check out the insightful director's commentary by Ridley Scott, the artistic director and the director of photography. I forget their names, but the AD and the DP are on there too. And it's the most boring director's commentary I've ever heard in my life. This is a, this is a road. 
Yeah, it's terrible, and it's really muffled. I mean, Ridley Scott's voice is a little muffled. I think I'll have a cheese sandwich today. I'm going to change the EQ on the mixer so you can get a feel for what the director of photography and the artistic director's voices sound like on this thing, but here goes. I'm going to change the EQ right now. Hang on. Okay, so, you know, it's so muffled, and it sounds really bad, and you, it sounds like they're talking through a pillow, and there's a microphone on the other side of the pillow. A microphone on the other side of the pillow, and it's really, really awful. And so far, the only really cool tidbit of information I've gotten, and this is actually quite, quite nice, was uh, if you remember the film, the he became a slave. Maximus did. That's right, General and Odious Maximus. And yes, and he became owned by that guy whose name I can't remember right now. It wasn't. I don't Prospero, the, or was it Prospero? I can't remember his name. But at one point, that ex-gladiator, ex-gladiator guy. guy gives him a breastplate, like a leather breastplate, which used to be his when he fought as a gladiator. And on it are two horses, mm-hmm. like silver horses. Right. And there's a, a, a scene where Maximus is sort of in the, 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 the gladiator jail where they wait because they're slaves. Mm-hmm. And Lucilla daughter of the Caesar's son, Lucius, walks by and says, are you the one they call the Spaniard? And he says, yes. And and he says, I heard you were so big you could crush a man's skull with your hands. And he said, well, not a man, but a boy. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and he looks at the breastplate that he's wearing, and Lucius, the young boy, says, do you have great horses in Spain? And he says, the best. And then he points at the horses, and apparently he they're the names of the horses he used to have in Spain. He says, this one is Scato, and this one is Argento. You know, fine. I never thought about that. In Latin, Scato and Argento are trigger and silver. <laughs> <laughs> and Argento I should have gotten because the, you know, the periodic table for silver is AG, AG which is Argentum, right. right? And But, yeah, how clever is that, right? Sometime, four years ago when this film came out, there was a Latin scholar somewhere in the United States going, <laughs> that's... One guy, that, right? One guy got that. But it's really cool now that I know that. <laughs> trigger. And, of course, there's probably a lot of the European Latin scholars who got it but don't get the trigger and that's silver right. references because they're sort of American movie references. <laughs> that's right. Uh, let's see. Well, that would be The Lone Ranger and... Silver is a Lone Ranger. Yeah, and Trigger was Trigger um, is Dale Rogers. Roy Rogers. Or Roy Rogers. Dale Evans Dale was his Evans. wife. Yeah. Same difference. So anyway, that is so far the really cool piece of uh, of little trivia I've gotten out of there. And One you managed that, to get that out of the muffled sound? Yeah. Well, he wasn't as muffled as the AD and the DP, but it's just – it's really the worst director's commentary I've ever heard. And I've, I've, I, if I own the DVD, I make a point of listening to it because usually there's some interesting little side stories in there. Yeah. Well – I'm thinking of uh, picking up Pulp Fiction. I want to hear if there's any commentary there. Because I'll bet there is. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino is one of those most entertaining guys to listen to, even when he's talking about nothing. Did you know that the guy who played Maximus's slave owner there, that ex-gladiator guy, he died during the production of the That's film. That's right. I remember that. And he died, and they hadn't finished his scenes, so they had to figure out a way to kill him in the film. And they he had died before they had decided... That they were going to, you know, I, I suppose they had already written how his character would end or live or not die when he was alive, mm-hmm. but then they needed to find a way to sort of end the character's life. And if you recall, uh, they ended up uh, rescuing Maximus from the compound to try to, to smuggle him out of the city to go get his armies to come in and he was going to come back and kill Commodus and, uh, and then put the, the city in the council's hands. And there was that scene where 
that ex Eddie Gladiator dude guy, you know, kind of let him go, mm-hmm. and then the um the uh, what was it called the sort of secret police of the uh, the emperor came and they killed what's his name Prospero or whatever his name was, but he was already dead by then. So what they did was they took a they took his head from a previous scene where he said a piece of dialogue and they CGI'd it onto another guy's body. And it's really seamless because I went back and looked at the two scenes and it's really good. He's sort of saying one of those final swan song lines. There's a, there's that moment where Maximus is going out into the arena to fight that gladiator that they got out of retirement. And then they right. had the tigers come out and, and Commodus was trying to kill him there. And the, the former gladiator dude, his slave owner said something like, remember, we're just in life. We're just ashes and dust, ashes and dust. They took that scene. And they superimposed his head on, and he said ashes and dust, and then they they, they killed him at the end. So anyway, it was a really nice piece of work, probably by ILM, but I don't know. And it wasn't as horrible as what they've done on The Sopranos with the the mother who died. Yeah, and I've been looking for that, and I can't really see it where they – because she is officially dead in all the episodes. The character finally died Mm -hmm. up in season – I'm up into the first four episodes of season three. Actually – It stood out for me quite a bit. I didn't notice it. I have to go back and look. I was actually a little bit disturbed by the the first four episodes of season three are on DVD one. And it was the scene where the therapist got raped. I was totally right. taken by surprise by that. And I'm like, wow. I mean, that really hit me like a sledgehammer. That was very disturbing. I was totally freaked out by that. There's a lot of disturbing stuff in that series. Well, that sort of sort of violence just, you know, I sort of see Tony Soprano as a cartoon character. I don't see this as real. But when I see, you know, a rape scene, for some reason, it really freaks me out. I don't know why. Have you gotten to the part where um, she's actually looking for revenge? Well, the fourth season ends with her crying in a in a therapy session with Tony Soprano, and he's way too uh, intuitive. Mm-hmm. As as I know the Tony Soprano character, he's he's not this insightful. And he was like, you know, he was trying to console her and put his arm around her and pat her on the back a little. And at the she's still crying, and he says, "Is there something you want to say to me?" And she says, no, and this, the episode ends. And I haven't seen anything past that. So don't tell me anything. But I do know this. If Tony Soprano finds out she was raped, I feel sorry for the guy because <laughs> he fancies her quite a bit. Well, it's good because I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm not going to give away anything. But All I know is I want the nickname Johnny Sack. <laughs> That's a great nickname. And his name actually begins with like Sacrament. Sacrimony or something. Sa- yeah, something like that. So. But, yeah, but it, it sounds a little obscene and it, it's not. The, the whole rape thing wasn't done just to to brutalize her she actually starts to sympathize with some of the feelings that and some of the motivations that that these mobsters uh have so i think it would be a perfectly normal and dare i say healthy thought for someone who was raped it would be perfectly normal for them to be thinking i want that person dead every one of us would be doing it how we act on that thought is is what separates us from animals. Right. So you'll enjoy how it plays out. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, I got a bunch of free coupons from the Blockbuster Club because they screwed up a bunch of my rentals, so I'm actually going to go rent uh, disc number two. One of my friends at work was supposed to lend me season three, but when he went into his DVD collection, he noticed uh, his third season DVD set was gone, and then he remembered he lent it to somebody oh. a year ago, and they haven't gotten it back yet. So he's currently you know, trying to get it back, but I'm going to go rent the, uh, re- the the disc number two tomorrow. Anyway. But anyways, yeah. But anyways, we got a tune? We have tunes, and this is something that uh, you brought to town. I did? You did. Let's check it out. Hey, 
Those guys are tiny. <laughs> that actually, there's a story about that band too. That band is the Microscopic Septet, which may be the coolest name for a band <laughs> I've ever heard. Years ago, and I'm talking about '89 or something like that. I used to watch VH1, and they had a show on. I mean, I didn't watch, go out of my way to watch VH1, but used on, to walk a mile for a VH1. On Saturday night, Sunday morning from midnight till 2 a.m., they used to have a show called New Visions, and it was all jazz and fusion and all kinds of stuff. I saw Kevin Eubanks, the guy who plays guitar Mm -hmm. in the Tonight Show band. He came out as like this pimply-faced teenager and just freaking unbelievable on the acoustic. Now he's he's just pimping. He's unbelievable. He's world-class, and I was blown away by Kevin Eubanks. And anyway, I'm watching one night, and this band comes on, and it's the Microscopic Septet, and I was blown away. They played this song. And, lobster in Limelight. Yeah, Lobster in the Limelight by the Microscopic Septet. And I hadn't thought about them in years. And then kind of when the internet came around, I said, you know what? Because I couldn't find their records anywhere. And when the internet sort of blossomed in late 94, 94-ish, you know, when the web kind of came around. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it was a little later than that. I don't think I was able to find them immediately. But, you know, five years ago, I said, I wonder what happened to the Microscopic Septet. So I did a search. I found Philip Johnston's website, the guy who leads the band. He's one of the sax players. And by the way, it is a septet. It's piano, drums, bass, and then four saxophones. So mm-hmm. there's seven people in the band. That's the whole septet Septa thing. thing. Yeah, that's the whole septet thing. And I emailed Philip Johnston and inquired about purchasing some CDs. And I did uh, buy this CD, which I think is called Seven Men in Neckties, which is a, <laughs> which is a great name for a CD. And I'm on his email list. So whenever that new CD comes out, I, uh, I get that kind of information. And he emailed me about a month ago. And, well, he mailed everybody in his email list. There wasn't anything special. And one thing, the, the thing that he was emailing us about was the fact that that video from New Visions was was on YouTube, and I was really excited uh, because it took me back like 15, 16 years to be able to see that moment where I went, wow, these guys are really good. So anyway, I've had a few interaction, interactions with Philip over the years, and I asked him if we could play the tune, and he said, yes, be my guest. Play my tunes. I'd love it. Once again, not pod safe, but we do have permission safe. to play it. I just keep want to, play, want to keep playing with these things. <laughs> Rich, can you put another log on the fire? <laughs> well... It's funny you should, well, you are aware, of course, but none of our, our listeners are, but my back is to a fireplace. We could actually do a fireside chat one of these days. Stop. Okay. It's killing me. It's a, <laughs> right. like a Milky Way wrapper. <laughs> it was, sounds just like fire. He was using it as a percussive device before in one of the songs, <laughs> and it actually sounded pretty cool. Not that it was recorded, but. So John's had a topic idea. Yeah, I've got it written up on the board there. Read that for me. It says, is it possible to drop out? Yeah, and I'm not talking about in the 60s sense where you, you know, tune out, drop out, you know, it's like a high school thing. You drop out of high school and become like a laborer? What what are you talking about? You know me. You know I've got a million and one thousand billion trillion with lots of zeros. I can't count that high. Kind of interests. Google. You know, and stuff stuff that I like to do. John has a lot. I, I have a lot of hobbies myself, but I, I'm, I'm sort of trying to reduce that down to a fine a reduction, a fine wine, a sauce, a sauce. of my hobbies. <laughs> well, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to figure out, is it possible in this world, in this society, is it possible for someone who's already kind of gotten themselves in this groove where they've got a career, they've got the house, the cars, they've got kids in school. The all Corvette, that. the pool. The Corvette, the pool. Yeah, the boat in the garage. The mistress. No, none of that. So they've, they've got themselves sort of in this, for lack of a better word, rut. Okay. A rut. Okay. Is that like a jut? No. Absolutely nothing like it. You know, 
it's not like I'm I'm totally miserable, but I'm finding myself, I'm in a career, and really the only thing that I'm getting out of this career is the paycheck. You know, I'm, I'm able to do the job, I do it well, but it's not like I get a whole lot of, you know, spiritual, physical, mental kind of life-changing satisfaction out of it. I think it, the word you're looking for is fulfillment. Fulfillment, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Dictionary over there. So I'm not getting a whole lot of, you know, personal fulfillment out of this. And I also feel like I'm not really changing many people's lives with this. I'm not really doing a whole lot of good for society with what I'm doing. But it really brings home the bacon. So is it possible? Is it possible in this society to just drop out? Take a radical change? Make a radical change? You know, go 180 degrees? And I'm finding it really do difficult. Do a flip-flop. Do a, no, not a flip-flop waffle. And we're not going to go back to the politics thing. I'm just thinking, you know, I re- really would like to do something different, but I'm finding it difficult because I've got a lot of responsibilities mm, and mostly financial, mostly financial. And sure, I would love to be able to say, take one of the things that is my hobby, the things that I love to do, spend more time doing it and, and make that my career. What would you, what do they say? If, what would you do for free? Make that your career, right? I mean, that's right. the thing. Because I've got two things that I've always gone back to that I really love to do, and that's one, create artwork, and the other is... Shark hunting. Shark hunting. <laughs> well, bare-handed, bare-teeth shark hunting. Naked in a naked, rainstorm. Naked, naked in a rainstorm. That's right. But, you know, one of those things is not feasible, so I'm just going to have to do the shark hunting thing. Yeah, well... <laughs> Exactly. No. So making artwork and also the other thing is cooking, doing the whole baking thing. And I've always wanted to do some kind of business like that, like coffee shop type of... John's a regular Willy wanker. I'm a, I'm a confectioner of sorts. I'm not candied. <laughs> You're a carrot? <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I was to do either of those things... If I were to do either of those If I were... Things. If me was to do thing like that, I would have to essentially go bankrupt because I've got a lot of these financial responsibilities. I can't just drop out of the job that I'm doing, you know. I can't just quit my job and start baking cookies for a living or or painting or, or drawing or Making doing anything like cookies, doing anything the like generator. that. So I'm I'm looking for some help. I need some help. Is mm. it, I mean is it possible I and mean, what do you think about this? And this topic is being sprung upon me totally by surprise. Well, I wanted it to be a surprise because I want to get your reaction. During one of the songs, John just walked up to the board and wrote what the topic for the show was going to be. And I was like, in keeping with the rest of our shows, it's, you know, I think about that all the time, right? What would, what would, what do we love to do? So how can we, what, and what would we do for free? And how can we turn that into a career? You know, I really wish I had the answer because I'm like a 96-year-old guy who hasn't found his place in life yet, you know? So um, You're 95, so just take it easy on yourself. Yeah, I'm retired. <laughs> John just – what was that you just stuck up in your nose? My finger. Uh, no, what is that actually? Is that tape? What <laughs> is that? Don't worry about it, audience. <laughs> but he did have it in his nose. I'm, I'm doing what Rich usually does to me <laughs> when I'm talking. He yeah, I, in his... I usually throw curveballs and all sorts of weird things at John to get him to, to laugh out loud when we're – when we're uh, when he's talking anyway. So, you know, I, I don't think I have good answers for this because I'm in the kind of the same rut that you are. You know, you left me a really long email uh, three or four days ago yep. about work and whatnot, uh, to which I replied and to which I did not get a reply. In fact, I was talking about that with one of my good friends today. Well, because I'm, I'm still kind of 
stung by the stuff that's going on right now. And, and, and that's one of the things I also want to try to avoid is taking my current talking. situation, t- no, talking, taking my current situation and, and jumping away from it. I want to jump towards something better. I don't want to just be reacting to some pain. Well, that I, I don't really feeling. see that as a bad thing. I mean, if, if jumping away from pain, good. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that a bad thing? I think, I think it would be bad to do if you just did it without any uh, thought about the fact that you have bills to pay and, and then, you know, you have right. a family. I mean, don't be irresponsible, but I think it's okay to jump away from pain. Well, pain, I know the bad pleasure. Good. I know that a lot of hollow deck. Good. <laughs> All right, Larry Flint. <laughs> so what I'm thinking here is that, that if, if you just up and quit your job because you don't like your job and you just take the, the first thing that comes to mind when you're in the middle of pain, you're well, not going to be making a decision, a yeah. lifelong decision. Yeah, but rationality should come to the fore here, and I don't think a rational person is just going to do that. I mean, there are there are times when people might do that. In fact, there was a great Twilight Zone episode that kind of remind you. This is reminding me of a Twilight Zone episode called I'm a Burgess Stop. Meredith suddenly? No, it's not Burgess Meredith, but he was in five of them. Uh, no, it was an episode called A Stop at Willoughby. Willoughby. Next stop, Willoughby. I remember that. Willoughby. Next stop, Willoughby. But do you remember what happened? Yeah, the guy just was on a train. He was on a train, and he was commuting from New York. I guess he lived on Long Island, and he had the high pressure, push, 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 come on, push, 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 the boss who would scream that at him every day. He was in advertising. And he would, on the commute home, he would always dream about this little town called Willoughby. It was probably 19th century. There were people riding around on those bikes with the big wheel in the front and the little wheel in the back. I forgot what they called Totally call unstable. I'm going to buy one of those one of these days because there are rep, uh, replicas made of those. They're really cool. And it was like, you know, it was the town with the town square and the band playing under the pavilion. And, and, uh, we've got trouble. He would always right here dream in River City. about going back to Willoughby. And, of course, Serling, I think, is one of the most brilliant writers of our time. And the twist at the end of this episode was great. Do you remember the twist? Now, Willoughby, Willoughby, next stop, well, Willoughby. Real. Well, it wasn't real, no. He, Willoughby, in, in one of his dreams of this idyllic town, he ended up, from all the pressure of work and his wife putting pressure on him because his wife wanted furs and jewelry and all that stuff and got really mad at him when he talked about even when he even broached the subject of quitting his high-pressure job with the boss who was a jerk, he finally, in one of these dreams about Willoughby, jumped off the train, and he died. And the very last scene of the episode was when they put him in the coroner's car. They closed the door, and it said, Willoughby and Son's Funeral Home. Oh, It was right. so great. I mean, oh, that's just classic that's Serling. Right. It was just brilliant. So my advice to you is die. Don't jump off a train, <laughs> and don't go to the Willoughby Funeral Home because I heard their service isn't that good. But I'm I'm with you because you know what I there's a you know where I work it's kind of I guess I can't complain I work forty hours a week I basically work nine to five and if I don't feel like working that hard I don't have to I can really get by with the big fake on days when I want to and you know my job isn't really that hard at times it's very rewarding at times it's not but there is one particular person in management who just doesn't seem to care anymore and this attitude is becoming um pervasive you know it's it's just like it, it rubs off economics. on me yeah it's it's like why should i care if he doesn't care especially since you know he's part owner of the company right. you know you things like that and so I'm thinking about the same thing you are. I've been thinking about it for quite a while, as are many of the people in the sales office. You know, they're all kind of like, what am I doing here? It's like this company doesn't seem to be on the same trajectory that I, A, would like it to be on, and B, I would like my life to be on. So, Well, yeah, and, and the thing is, my, my current job, well, 
it's a little bit more high pressure than my last job. My last push, 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 Tellerico, push, push, push. Yeah, and and it's more. It's not so much where I've got someone riding me like that. It's just I know what has to be done, and I and I necessarily have to do it because how it's, many hours a week you work in John? Uh, Four thousand. No, really, seventy. Uh, well, on average, if I were to yeah. average across the entire year, probably close to sixty. Yeah, that's a lot. I work forty, so I mean, my I can't complain about the hours that I work. But uh, you know, my complaints are a little different than yours. Yeah, but. and I'm thinking about it when I'm not working. So, but my last job. No oh pressure. God. Oh, geez. In my last job, I had no pressure. It was kind of like what you're talking about, nine to five. And I knew that everyone in every single fat layer of management above me, they didn't care about it either. They were just essentially, you know, just riding through. And it made. But you know, I do care. The work I do at work requires me to care. If I didn't care, really poor quality work would leave our facility. And I really don't want that because I, I care about the people I talk to on the phone every day and our customers and our clients. But I, I'm having trouble avoiding the not care. You know, right. when it when it when it flows downhill, not you know what that old saying is, not caring flows downhill. <laughs> I've never heard that until now, but I guess it's an old saying. Well, I, now. I made it up. It's mine. There you go. TM. <laughs> <laughs> C-circle. Anyways, the, that's what I'm getting at, is that I I can't help but I, care. I, 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 do I can't help do-do, but care. do do Rich is drunk. <laughs> I can't help but care. And, and I, yeah, and, I'm and with I'm, you on and that I'm one. And I'm feeling like in my last job, nobody really cared, and everyone was just pretty much going through the motions, and I was constantly frustrated with caring, so what I did was I left. I, I went to a new job. Well, in this job, it's different. A lot of people care, or you know, most people care, and most people care quite a bit. And there's so much work to do, but there aren't a lot of people there. It's a small company. Well, it just means that I've got to do more work. Well, I, I'm having management issues where I work, and I would call them bad management. And from what you told me uh, in that email, you're having management issues too. They're different kinds of issues, but to me, it, it still boils down to bad management. I mean, what you told me when you got hired was that your boss told you there's no one he would have rather had in that position. Agree I'm with agreeing. With yeah, you. okay. He, he shook his head, but that really doesn't register on radio. Sorry. So It's not radio, but okay. We'll it's, go with it's, that. It is radio. But anyway, so why would a guy who would rather not have anybody else in the position but you, you know, work you so many hours where you're thinking about going somewhere else? To me, that's bed management. And, you know, my boss just wants to be somewhere else. He just wants to be a teacher. He really does. I mean, I see it. It's his plainest day to me. He wants to be a teacher. He's a physics geek. But, you know, this job, since his parents own the company, you know, they're paying him great money, big money, you know, like big money. Well, the big, the, big money, as Dim would say in a clockwork horns, the big, big money. Well, so he it's can't the golden leave. handcuffs is what it is. Yeah, he can't leave because he has a certain lifestyle. He has that $50,000 Acura, which is a beautiful car with the headlights that turn, kind of like a Tucker. Mm-hmm. And But he'd much rather be a teacher. But guess what? Teaching doesn't pay squat. I mean... Good Lord, I was uh, at Salon last time, and one of the women, she's a part-time teacher. She's got her Ph.D. in economics, and she teaches economics part-time at Utica College, and she told me how much she makes. You know what the number was? Seventeen five. And I was like, how can someone with a Ph.D. be making seventeen five? And then, more importantly, how can they have a house on Clinton Street or Fountain Street in Clinton? I was like, holy cow. Must be some family money there. But anyway. Correct, dealing. Yeah, so we're looking for help from you out there on how to – Drop, Drop out. out. <laughs> I was going to say tune out, but that's a totally different wrong thing. Tune out, it takes maybe 15 bucks a crack and you're all set. <laughs> or a good bottle of wine. No, but I'm, I'm serious. I'm, yeah, I'm, a good I'm, bottle of wine. I'm looking at some sort of radical change because it's not just the job that I'm doing. It's 
that I want to be able to care about what I'm doing and I want to get some sort of fulfillment out of it. And I want to feel like at the end of the day, even though I may have worked 60 or 70 hours for that week, I want to know that that 60 or 70 hours wasn't just to accumulate wealth. My friend Donna. I talked about her last week. She runs the Family Nurturing Center. Mm-hmm. She puts in a lot of hours. She likes to go to the movies on Fridays at Munson, but often she can't because she's working late. And I bet she has that feeling. I'm sure she's. I'm certain she's not right. making a lot of money. She isn't driving a fancy car. She doesn't have a fancy house. But what she her, her house is beautifully decorated. She's got a great uh, aesthetic and a wonderful sense of style. I go over there, and we have wine little parties and stuff all the time. Great lady. In fact, I have a picture of her in my Holmes costume and she in her geisha <laughs> costume from the party, so it's really cool. We'll have to put it on the website one of these days. But, um, yeah, I bet she comes home feeling very fulfilled. Well, I'll have to take some tips from her. Actually, we could talk to her about that. We could have her on the show. Right. She'd and, come on. And my wife is looking at doing the same thing. I mean, she, she works in the medical profession. She works at, in one of the, the local clinics in pediatrics. And... She feels like she wants to do more work in the community. She wants to do more outreach-type work. But she feels like she's got handcuffs, too, because she knows that if she leaves the position that she's in, it's a financial hit. So it's it's kind of tough. She's she's feeling the same crunch that I'm feeling, that, and that I know that millions of people out there are feeling. And I just know that there's this general sense of malaise that's that's coating this, this nation. I think that we need to be doing some more fulfilling work. So that's my bottom line. I agree. So anyway, we got a tune, huh? It is a tune. Let's check it out. trifle of a song <laughs> <laughs> kind of a short one what was that one called uh, i believe it was i am jesus and you're not and who was that est ist 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 I-S-T. that uh all i know is dick dale called he wants his guitar surf riff back and you, some of you might kind of have remembered the pulp fiction uh kind of surf music vibe in that song mm-hmm. and it kind of reminded me of dick dale yeah that tune was nice and short you can and pop it, it in it, your mouth it's like yeah. a little lifesaver. Yeah, it balanced perfectly with the six-minute uh, <laughs> Lobster in the Limelight tune that we played earlier. So on average, our songs are like 20 seconds now. That's right. It brought it right down. What's going on? Saw a film, really sort of a wild film, and it was a bit of a marathon. It was uh, how long? 145 minutes. Zoinks. Yeah, that was a long film. A film called Army of Shadows, and uh, this is actually a 1969 film. Uh, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. And it is kind of about the French resistance in World War II. And the first thing I want to say is, you know, occupied France, when Germany was occupying France. And the first thing that totally blew me away was that I learned that the total number of people at its peak who were involved in the French resistance fighting the Germans from within France were 600. That's it. Yeah, 600. That just, I would have imagined there were more people than that. 
And this film is about several, three or four or five of the of real life characters who were involved in the French resistance and knew they could be killed at, at any moment, any day with what they were doing, you know, helping smuggle people in and out, mm-hmm. you know, sabotaging German things and things like that. And it was really interesting because uh, they showed the, those really scary moments, too, where when someone who was a part of the French resistance betrayed them to the Germans, they right. had to be eliminated. So it was really quite brutal in some ways, but yet a very interesting peek and look into this kind of underground movement, which we have heard about, but we never really saw anything like this in film before. And it's not a war film. I mean, you don't see people shooting guns on front lines. And it's it's really all about those sort of underground movements of these five main characters who don't have names. I mean, they do have names, but nobody knows their names. They don't have an address. They sleep in a different place every night. And their goal, their one job in life is to undermine the Germans in their continuing efforts to occupy France. And beyond that, I'm not even sure what I can say about this film because it's, first of all, it's very long and there's so much that happened in it. It's It's... It's just too big. You know, it's mm-hmm. really too big to talk about, but it really, really was an amazing look at this period of history. And uh, I would really recommend it. It was, it was fascinating. It was, that, that's the word I would use to describe it. It was fascinating. Well, not too long ago, I, I caught on, uh, on one of those, those channels, History Channel, I think it was, where there was a, a story about um, a U.S. airman who was dogfighting over France and he got shot down by, uh, by German planes. He crashed. But he uh, he bailed out and he managed to parachute into the the French countryside. But he um, he knew that France was occupied and didn't want to get captured, so he was just essentially hiding out. And he saw there were some people who saw him, some farmers or, or whatnot, and he was sort of just hiding out, running and hiding. And then he run away, run away. He ended up in a a barn, and and he, there were French a French farmer who essentially took him and hid him away and, and put him underground, not physically, literally underground, put him underground. And this was taking his own life in his own hands because from what they said, and, and it was amazing because a lot of the people who were involved in this incident, they were still alive when they were they were showing this, this documentary. Um, they were saying that they kept, the Germans kept uh, telling the French farmers that if any American came to see you, if you did not turn them in immediately, you would be killed. And they were. They were they were murdered whenever they were harboring what they say was the enemy. So these people were taking their lives in their own hand to to help this guy out. And then from person to person, they kept shuttling this guy out. And then he eventually met with the French resistance who gave him new civilian clothes. They put him on a train and walked him out. And, and he recounted this one scene where he was on a train with a guy from the French resistance. And... There was someone next to him trying to talk to him, saying, where are you from? What's your name? Just being friendly. And the guy from the French resistance had to, kept, had to keep saying, he doesn't speak. He's a mute. And, and was, it was a tense, nervous scene because they could have blown the whistle because the Germans ran the trains, too. Right, right. But the coolest thing was at the end of this, the guy from the French resistance who, who smuggled this guy out and the U.S. airmen, they had a reunion in France. And these are two old men in a time of peace now. And... They were just essentially teary-eyed at, at meeting each other. They hadn't seen each other for 40, 50 years. So, yeah, it's a it's an amazing story, and I don't think that we should forget that kind of thing. That there was a lot of human bravery there. Yeah, and, I mean, that happened a lot in this film. You're talking about, you know, harboring a fugitive or whatever. You'd be mm-hmm. killed for doing that. 
obviously people who were involved or suspected of being involved with the French resistance were tortured and questioned to get information and killed, uh, you know, typically without trial, just questioned and then murdered. If right. They, they were found, you know, if they, they just didn't provide any good information and things like that. So it's a, it's a pretty brutal part of history, but, uh, you know, definitely one that uh, should be looked at and, and certainly not forgotten. But I, I thought this film was fantastic. And it's so funny because uh, I actually, when I was watching the film, was not aware that it was a 1969 film. There were some plain scenes where somebody had to parachute into France and whatnot, and the effects were totally cheese. And I just thought it was a low-budget film. And upon in, in looking at the film, you, I didn't get a, a 1969 vibe off of it at all. I mean, it was more taking like a place. 71. No, I thought it was a little more current than that. Really? So I was actually pretty impressed with with the film. And uh, the film itself takes takes place uh, through a six-month period uh, in late 1942 and into 1943. Uh, in many towns of France, because this group of people move around to mm-hmm. avoid being caught, and it's a it's a fascinating look. Check it out, Ken Army of Shadows, and it's not Army of Darkness. Different film entirely. No, it's an entirely different film. So I think that's another show, man. It's in the can. Yes, it is. Wow. I guess it's official now. There's no stopping it. It's like a train. Train train kept a rolling <laughs> all night long. It did. Words of wisdom from, from Johnny Ola. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, that's it. We're bloodthirsty vegetarians in the can once again. <laughs> I'm Rich Wilgus, <laughs> sometimes known as Richie Fingers. That's yeah. my North Jersey mob name. <laughs> Check out our blog, www.bloodyveg.com. Forum. We have a forum, www.bloodyveg.com slash forum. What's so, your name? Uh, John. Ola. <laughs> yeah, John Ola. From you, the you uh, Westchester ju- Olas. You make jukeboxes. That's my cousin Rock. Anyway, <laughs> what else do we got? Leave us feedback. Did we already do that one? Feedback at bloodyveg.com. We got to make sure that's working. Yeah, we'll check it out. Anyway, remember, you're listening to VIB. 